All right, so Paul, again, wrote his first letter to the Corinthians to deal with these uh, a growing set of pastoral crises uh, in that congregation. And his purpose was to, to recalibrate the life of the church so that they were once again living uh, in, in light of their calling as Christians. And so this letter deals with several formal uh, and institutional aspects of the life of the church. Uh, the book is about church life, but church life centers on its formal activities that God has appointed for us to do. Preaching, ministry, church discipline, the Lord's Supper, worship, things like this. Uh, so the first major portion of this book in chapters 1 to 4, if we remember, was about Paul's apostolic ministry, the foundation of gospel of a gospel community. And he addressed divisions in the church based on people's preferences for various preachers and preaching styles. Second part of the book, in chapters 5 to 7, addressed more specific aspects of division uh, and controversy in the Corinthian congregation. These chapters uh, mark the more formal features of church life, according to the scriptures, specifically regarding church discipline. Church discipline does actually address features of our lives and have an effect on how we relate to one another. And then in chapters 8 and uh, some ways uh, through chapters 8, uh, through chapter 11, Paul addressed a question about Christian life concerning food laws. So we saw last week how the main issue was food sacrifice to idols caused some debate. Uh, no, the reasoning was since idols aren't real, uh, they aren't real gods, especially, uh, why can't we just eat food that's been sacrificed to them? This isn't a meaningful thing since they're fake. They're just statues. But at the same time, for former pagans uh, who used to be involved with these idols as their religion still had issues of conscience concerning these idols and particularly the food sacrificed to them. Now, Paul's response in principle to all this was the rule of love, right? There, there is doctrine and there is application. Uh, they have to go together and cohere, and yet uh, it takes wisdom and love to bring all of the relevant truths to bear upon a situation. And so in chapter 9, Paul used himself as an example in how he had a right to financial support for his ministry, even though he didn't insist upon using that right. So then uh, we started reading about that uh, in the latter half of chapter 9, and we saw how, how he was adamant that he wasn't going to use right, uh, and that he wanted his ministry to be approved as, as he didn't use this right. And then as we lean into chapter 10, Paul's point uh, is about how just like he didn't insist on his rights because he was concerned about them, well, they too should be concerned about one another. So that's what that's what's going on as he, as he leans his discussion uh, back towards the food issue in chapter 10. His point in uh, the last little bit of chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, is about his about his ministry. 
So a lot of people take that about, you know, if I do enough good works, God will approve me at the last. And clearly the context is about Paul's own ministry. So this is not about judgment at the last day for everyone. This is about ministers standing approved and the job given to them. Uh, and Paul's ministry, which he wished would be approved, was focused on benefiting others. So as we come to chapter 10, verses 1 to 6, he is still in these verses exhorting the Corinthians to have concern for each other. That's his point. Be concerned about each other. And so our main point together here uh, on this call going ahead is that our life together in the covenant of grace means that we have to be concerned about one another. We have to use the rule of love. We have to be concerned about each other. That's the main point. So let's read verses 1 to 6 again. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers... Now, it's interesting, right, that Corinth is a is a Gentile city. And yet he talk, he's talking to Gentiles about our fathers, referring to the Old Testament figures. So... He's already talking about a unity between the new covenant that includes Jews and Gentiles and the Old Testament people of God. Brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. This is the Exodus, right? Um, And all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses. And just as a side note there, as I sort of comment, uh, it might be interesting that they didn't leave their babies on the seashore. Uh, as they went through the Red Sea. So there is indeed an explicit case of infant baptism in the New Testament. They were all baptized into Moses, including the children. Um, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as, and and note this, right? Note verse 6, that he's talking about Old Testament events. He says, now these things took place as examples for us, new covenant Christians, that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul appealed Uh, to the same events from the book of Numbers 14, uh, as Jude did in Jude 5, and we've been considering that in our morning sermons. And he appealed to that event to show how he knew that the covenant community included true believers and those who partake of only the administration. He indicated the spiritual reality that Christ was the rock that followed them. Christ was the rock in the Old Testament. Just like Jude, however, Paul also pointed out that unbelievers in the covenant were destroyed. Right? That's how Jude put it, uh, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and then destroyed the ones who didn't believe. Paul says uh, they were That after, you know, he describes the Exodus, he says that they were overthrown in the wilderness. He's talking about the same event. Crucially, these events in the Old Covenant community took place as examples 
for our new covenant community so that all who partake of the administration, life in the church, would be driven to receive the substance, salvation in Christ, by true faith. So, right, God's people, we we take away from that, God's people throughout the ages have taken part in the promises of Christ by laying hold of whatever feature of life God gave to them in their time for distributing the gospel to them. God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision to point forward to how Christ would be cut off from his communion with the Father as he bore the penalty of his people's sin. Right, Genesis 17, 1, 14, Colossians 2, 11 to 15. Uh, the institution of circumcision, and then Christ was circumcised, cut off from the flesh as he bore the penalty for our sin. The, then again, in another time, the animal sacrifices under Moses uh, for Israel pointed ahead to how Christ would die for the sins of his people and indicated the demand for uh, the name's obedience to other features of the covenant for signified how Christ would earn our citizenship in heaven on our behalf. Leviticus 6, Hebrews 4, uh, 14 to 5, 10, I think. Um, in the new covenant, the preaching of God's word announces the promises of Christ. Baptism symbolizes how he washes away our sin, and the Lord's Supper shows how he gives us spiritual nourishment as we feed upon Christ by faith. There is, therefore, a commonality among God's people of all ages that we partake of the promise of Christ through whatever means God gives to his people at that time. And as our confession says, uh, whatever means God gave at any given time were sufficient or adequate for building up the faith of the people in that age. Uh, because of that commonality, though, there, there is a unity between God's people of all times and places in, in that the covenant communities under the old and new uh, economies, the old and new testaments, were all part of God's one ongoing plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so uh, now I, I kind of want to give a, a bit more explanation than we've had recently of how God's people were bound together across the ages within God's developing design for redemption. Although the old and new economies looked very different, they are ultimately part of God's one people. Now, I think this is very exciting. And so we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. I hope this is encouraging for you. I love this passage. Uh, don't tell me if it's not encouraging for you. I'll just leave it at that. So, uh, ter- yeah, Andy, Andy mentioned uh, this passage last Sunday uh, because it was it was referred to in numbers that Moses was faithful uh, in God's house um, and Christ is more faithful. Uh, that's one aspect of this text. There's also some other really fascinating stuff here. And so uh, let's look at how this underscores the unity of God's people in Christ across the Testaments. And I think here uh, it's a winding passage. And it's hard to follow at times, but I think if we if we straighten it out a little bit uh, and get the pieces in order, the scripture plainly teaches that the people of God in all ages are part of God's one house, which highlights how they have a unity together 
So Hebrews 3, 1 to 6 makes this point well. Uh, starting in verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. That's the reference from Numbers 12. For, because, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and, and our boasting in our hope. So this passage uh, advances one of Hebrews' main themes that uh, Christ is the preeminent son of God, uh, who is our faithful high priest. So, I mean, that, that theme starts back in Hebrews 1, verses 4 to 12, and then Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. Uh, these verses set forth Christ again as faithful, but develop that idea to show how he is faithful in a greater way than God's other servants, because Jesus himself is God and over God's people of every age. So to give a summary of these verses, Moses has some glory as a servant inside God's house. I think you see that, it's clear. But Christ has supreme glory as the son and builder over God's house. So Moses is in God's house, Jesus is over God's house. The book of Hebrews admonishes Christians to remain faithful to their confession of Christ rather than return to the uh, ceremonies of Moses, which was a temptation for those who had converted from Judaism uh, as, as Roman oversight pressed upon Christianity uh, in these early centuries of the church. In context, then, the exhortation in Hebrews uh, 3 uh, throughout kind of the surrounding verses, the Christians would see Christ's gl greater glory and rejoice at belonging to Christ regardless of the mounting difficulties upon them. Now in Numbers 12, which Andy considered uh, last week, uh, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, but God's response was that he is faithful in all my house, with him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. So the people should not deride Moses because he had direct contact with God and was the faithful servant. Despite that privileged status, uh, however, Hebrews says that Christ has an even higher place. Than Moses. Christ is not the servant, but the son, and is not faithful within the house, but over the house. And I think there are two points worth drawing from Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. So first, uh, there's an implicit uh, demonstration that Christ is God. 
Okay, and so this this is sort of tucked inside of Christ's role as the builder of the house. Right? Christ is worthy of more glory than Moses, quote, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So, so Christ does not simply possess a greater quantity. He doesn't just have a, more, a, a bigger amount of the same kind of glory as Moses. Rather, he has a superior quality. He has a better kind of glory than Moses had. He's not a servant of the same kind. He's the son over the house. That's his kind of glory. Christ has glory over God's house, though, because he's the builder. He's the one who built it. Right? And and then these verses go on and, and link the title, the builder, to God. Uh, Christ is called the builder of God's own house. But God is the ultimate builder. Christ's glory is then God's glory. And God's house is Christ's house. Well, because Christ is God. Now, second, uh, and building on, on the last thing, really, this passage also shows uh, the unity of God's people across the Testaments because, because Christ builds the house that includes Moses. Did you catch that? I think that's so fast. So, uh, and includes those under Moses' ministry. So, so Christ's role in relation to Moses here then recalls the major point that he is the savior of all of God's people throughout every era of redemptive history. Moses and those under his ministry are in the house. So Israelite believers are in the house that Christ built. The point, that point underscores the unity between God's people in the old and new economies of the covenant of grace. After all, the author first refers to God's people under Moses as God's house, but then directs Christian by saying, we are his house. The major point is that God has one house and that house is his one people, and it includes God's old and new covenant people, and Christ is the builder of that one house. It is very clear that Christ is the Savior throughout all ages, because those who are God's house are those who hold fast to the confession about Christ. There is hardly a better way to indicate the unity of the covenant of grace, both in Christ's role as the mediator in every period, and also in the unity of God's people in old and new economies. Christ's role as the builder of God's one house in Hebrews 3 sheds light on other passages, right, that, that attest the unity of God's people across the Testaments. Ephesians 2, 11 to 15, uh, talks about how uh, the Gentiles were once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise. But, right, this passage in Hebrews 3 can, confirms that Gentiles, now in Christ, as Paul will say in Ephesians, join the actual commonwealth of Israel when they come to faith in Christ. 
God's Israel is no longer a geopolitical nation, but is fulfilled in the church. Right? We can think of the olive tree in Romans 11, uh, when Paul wrote that although a wild olive shoot, the Gentile, that is, the Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. If Christ is the builder of God's house that includes old and new covenant believers, then he is also the root that nourishes them both as different branches of the same tree. As Christ made Gentile believers into citizens of the true commonwealth of Israel, so he has grafted them onto the same olive tree of God's people, just like there is one house of Old and New Testament people, there is only one tree. The original tree was Israel, but God has grafted us, Gentile believers, onto that same tree in the New Covenant. God has one people in Christ across every era even if they look differently in various periods of the covenant of grace. Now, right, this is about 1 Corinthians 10, and I do remember that. Uh, So we should circle back to that. Paul appealed to the unity of God's people in the Old and New Testaments. That's what we've been, I've I've been trying to unpack, is that this is a, a biblical principle, and Paul appealed to that unity for a specific reason. People participate in the administration, even though not all partake of the substance. And that was the same then, and that is the same now. In the context of his argument about applying the truth in love, in chapters 8 to 10, Paul's point is not. And hear this, right? Because this is about, I mean, the passage is clearly about there are people in the covenant, and they fall fall away and are destroyed, Okay. Paul's point is not that you need to worry about your salvation. Okay, his we saw that this morning, right? That Jesus saved, saved this group of people, and it was those who did not believe that he destroyed. So if you have faith in Jesus, this is not about measuring up your works for final salvation or anything like that. But Paul's point was rather not the opposite, as throughout all of these chapters— Not to start worrying about your salvation, okay, but that you should be concerned about everybody else. You've got got to keep your eye on the brothers and sisters in the covenant community around you. If you insist upon your rights and defend those who are weak in their faith, it may force them out of the covenant community and away from their walk with God. And so we need to be careful about the way that we apply the truth so that we make sure not to drive anyone away from the church, which is the place where Christ is given to them. So the application here is to be concerned about each other, right? Live out what you believe in such a way that we help and support those with us in the covenant of grace rather than doing something that harms their faith. Now, of course, this should bring us to consider the gospel, right? Our lives should be shaped by the gospel. And even though there is this example there, the gospel is foremost good news that Christ gave himself for you because he was concerned about your interests. 
He did not insist on what was his because his sacrifice would benefit you, Christian. We want people in the church because that's where they hear the good news. That's where they're told about Jesus. That's where they come to salvation. And that good news is that Jesus died for our sins. He died so that we could be reconciled to God. He died so that even when we fail at loving one another well and being concerned about one another perfectly, we are still right with our God. That is a magnificent truth. Um, I take heart in that. I hope you do too. Uh, We will pray and then we will sing. Father God, there are magnificent truths throughout your scripture. We pray that we would love the the riches of what we see there and can learn there. We also pray that we're exhorted to act in concern for one another. Uh, We pray that we would be motivated not by a guilt trip, not by a burden, but indeed by uh, the magnificent news of the gospel that fills our hearts with joy that we might live not for ourselves, but for someone else. We do pray that we will stay rooted in that good news and everything that you might have before us this week. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.